The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Thank you for the very warm and generous introduction. Uh, And I'm glad to be speaking to all of you on such an important topic. Uh, It's uh, one that, as uh, we all know, is all around us these days. Uh, I I wanted to consider context as well, just immediate context. I was thinking about uh, the World Cup. We were talking about it uh, around our table. Joe, as an Englishman, as usual, is uh, feeling defeated. Uh, (laughs) Shame he's not here for that, but he can watch the tape. Um, And when I was thinking of social justice, I was also thinking of the concept of of fairness uh, and fair play. Uh, you heard something in my biography, and uh, the concept of fair play is actually a very, very English uh, concept. In uh, Germ- German, uh, I lived in Germany for three years, they don't actually have a word for this. They, they use the word fair play to um, describe fair play, because again, there's no uh, exact analogy there. And uh, you'll find this in terms of, of justice uh, is following, of course, the laws or the rules. We'll see this actually in the World Cup in the way that different countries approach the rules. Um, Some nations will regard uh, the spirit of the rules as important to the game, and the English are are amongst those. And so there's a certain way of playing which we regard as fair play. Um, And that would, I would say, extend to the Anglosphere in general. Canadians will have the same thing, so will Americans, and it's almost uh, innate. And it seems to me, uh, and this is why I think... uh, uh, social justice is so powerful in the Anglosphere is because there's a connection between uh, not just the, the rules and the right rules, but actually doing it in the right spirit. And that deals with the heart issue. Uh, there's a recognition, probably because of our Puritan heritage, that uh, it's not only having the right rules, but the right heart that's necessary. So the reason why forgiven hearts, I just got this quote from Doug Wilson today, why forgiven hearts uh, gravitate towards forgiveness is because circles are round. And the reason why uh, accusatory uh, hearts gravitate towards accusation is because uh, squares have four corners and angles. It's a new nature. So there's a recognition that the rules don't make for justice, and that really speaks to what Joe was talking about, uh, how justice and charity, justice and mercy... Uh, meet. Uh, Randy uh, quoted that uh, passage from Proverbs that spoke to precisely those two things. So I thought that was an interesting way of reflecting on this, but I wanted to start off uh, with a quotation. This is a quotation from the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. I quote, you know, at some point you are killing life in the fetus in self-defense. Of what? Of the mother's health? or her happiness, or of her social rights, or her privilege as a human being, I think she should have to answer for it and explain. Now, whether it should be to three doctors, or to one doctor, or to a priest, or a bishop, or to her mother-in-law, is a question you might want to argue. You do have a right over your own body. It is your body. But the fetus is not your body. It's someone else's body. And if you kill it, You'll have to explain. Now, that was the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. His name was Trudeau. 
Trudeau Sr. This was a quote from 1972 uh, in the Montreal Star. Now, as we know, uh, Pierre Trudeau was responsible for bringing in uh, the laws that struck down uh, the abortion laws that had reigned to that point. He was certainly not uh, what we would regard as uh, pro-life. And yet, when I uh, put this out in social media a few days ago, people said, who is this pro-lifer? I didn't know that Pierre Trudeau was a a pro-lifer. These were young people. And I said, well, he wasn't. But he said, well, he sounds a lot like it. And of course, he does in the current climate. Now, I wanted to use it as an illustration uh, to start off because... um, it's clear from his son, who's now the Liberal Party of Canada leader, that the, the woman doesn't have to answer or explain. It's a right, and apparently also a charter right. And again, remember, Pierre, Pierre Trudeau was responsible for bringing the Charter of Rights and Freedom, so it would be surprising to his father, doubtless. And to be liberal now is to deny our parliamentary reps their freedom of conscience. So what we're seeing here is a uh, quite a... Uh, pertinent cultural shift in the space of 42 years on what constitutes uh, conscience and liberty and so forth. Well, all of this is connected to our topic of social justice. Uh, In Mark Knoll's book, Whatever Happened to Christian Canada, he talked about, and I would recommend that you read this sometime. It's a really nice little tome, very short, not 50 pages. Uh, He talks about the fact that uh, Canada, and some of you will remember this well, I'm not quite that old. I was born in 67, the last time the Leafs won. I missed the English victory in the World Cup. Um, Yeah, (laughs) get going, says Joe. Um, And he noted that Canada, in comparison to the United States, could on many measures be considered to be a more Christian country than the U.S. And yet there's this huge seismic shift that he notes that has happened since then. Why is that? That's one of the things I want to consider uh, today. What is that that has brought about uh, this change? We will largely connect it to our sense of social justice and our social system. So where has that come about and why has it come about? So I've used a few biographical things already. I'm going to continue to go that route Uh, because I'm old enough to remember the Cold War as I think many of you are, and the strong tension I felt in Canada growing up between the communists, the Eastern Bloc, and what was called the free world, and Canada was uh, set somewhere in between that, at least that's how it was. Uh, I perceived it as a young man growing up in the 70s and 80s, uh, in the media it was presented, we were somehow in between the two, which is an odd thing when you consider it's presented as communism versus the free world, really we're not part of the free world? Um, But I remember that, and I'll I'll speak to why that uh, middle ground was problematic even back then a little later on. But I also remember 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, Uh, quite vividly. I was an undergraduate, and I was watching the fall of the Berlin Wall with a friend of mine who was a German. And he was moved by this in a way that obviously I wasn't, because it wasn't my country, and it wasn't divided, and it didn't have all the quite the same symbolic significance Uh, to me that it did to him. And a year later, I was in Germany. I spent three years there. Uh, And the fellow that I uh, shared accommodation with for two full years was from East Germany. He was from Leipzig. Uh, He was a surgeon uh, apprentice, and uh, he spoke Russian. 
uh, and Bulgarian, in addition to German, he spoke no English. Hard to find these days, but such was the gulf between East and West at that point. And when the Soviet Union and uh, the Eastern Bloc collapsed, it, it meant that overnight, most of our experiences, the whole world in which we lived in, uh, went with it. The political threat of communism evaporated, just like that. It was extraordinary. And I think there was also a sense, and it's reflected in the, the writing at the time, the response to it, and I'm going to quote a bit of that in a second here, that the new left of the 60s and 70s uh, had also probably seen its day. It was on a path of decline. Uh, the social left, the, and it was called the new left. If you don't know that term, just Google, Google it, new left. Um, because communism had clearly failed as a philosophy, and even in academia, where I've really spent my entire life, uh, adult life at any rate, it became increasingly rare to meet someone who actually would call himself a Marxist. It was rare. Although while I was in Germany, one of my friends who was a Russian historian told me uh, that there was an old Marxist in his uh, Russian class who, uh, upon being asked why they were taking Russian, uh, said that he wanted to read Marx in the original. Which, you know, they've been studying for six years and uh, nobody could tell him. He's German, he's German. Anyway... Um, and at that time, again, 1989, there was an academic by the name of Francis Fukuyama. Does anyone recall that name? Uh, he wrote a very influential essay just after the Berlin Wall fell called The End of History. Uh, he followed it up with a book uh, a few years later, The End of History and the Last Man. And he rather triumphalistically, it seemed to me, prophesied that, and I quote here, what we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War, or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. Uh, and 1991, uh, a couple years later, syndicated columnist George Will, who still uh, speaks and writes, he pronounced in Newsweek that the 60s are dead. So again, there was a sense that when communism fell, the new left was going to collapse with it. And politically speaking, that's probably true. As a unified force, that did happen. But the new left never went away. And this is what I want to talk about this afternoon. Uh, they remained very active, uh, particularly in the universities. Uh, and they radicalized and even metastasized in the form of special interest groups. Rather than being unified, they broke into small parts. And some of their influence, like political correctness, which emerged as a real force in the 80s, um, was already in evidence before the collapse of the Berlin Wall. But after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the resistance to communism and the left, they sort of went together. So the, uh, the fear of the threat of communism is, to some extent, it was a restraint on uh, the, uh, the thinking, uh, the worldview of what was being pushed through the new left and its ideas up till that point. Once that threat was gone and the political and economic threat had evaporated, uh, the other threats were basically dismissed because I'm afraid that it had come down to a war about economics and politics. And culture was irrelevant. 
And you can see this in the debates, uh, and you'll recall this if you were old enough in the 80s. It was really vers- it was capitalism versus communism, as if the whole soul of the Western world were caught up in a, an economic theory, which is already a debasement of uh, the biblical tradition. I mean, it's obviously a part of it, but it's a debasement, it's a narrowing, uh, and it's problematic. And I think that explains to some extent what happens afterwards, but I'll get to that in a bit. But some of the influence of the new left, like this term political correctness, suddenly took off. And if I use words like multiculturalism, tolerance, reproductive rights, political correctness, uh, safe sex, safe schools, inclusive schools, diversity, sensitivity training, and even today's topic, social justice, we would all recognize the connection with the politics of the left, although we increasingly we see them in also in the politics of those that we would uh, term, for lack of a better word, on the right, uh, I suspect that we wouldn't be able to identify them with a particular thinker or a particular movement, and that's partly because of the fragmentation I talked about. But they are actually connected. They're connected. And they are connected to something that is called, it's an ideology called cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism, unlike its better-known political and economic counterpart, uh, perdured well beyond the collapse of communism and to some extent made rapid advances precisely, as I said, because it, it was thought that once the communist threat had evaporated, that was the end of the threat of the left because the threat was a, perceived to be a political and an economic one, not a cultural one. And it made its advances, that is the cultural Marxists, precisely because those who called themselves conservatives, and mo- most Christians probably were included amongst them, acted as if that were no longer a threat and now they could get on with whatever they regarded as the chief business of Christians. And Joe spoke about the problem with that, the, the, the retreats. Uh, the truncations of the gospel there. And the reason that it's particularly relevant to the discussion today uh, is that since its inception, that is cultural Marxism, as far back as the end of the First World War, the principal stated aim of cultural Marxism has been the destruction of Western culture and in particular, all vestiges of the Christian religion, specific which we have witnessed since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Look what has happened in the public school system. Look at what has happened in the public square. Look what has happened in the realm of law. It is turned specifically anti-Christian. You all know this. Um, and Christians on the political right, uh, probably what Joe described as pietists, have made the, what they thought is a pragmatic decision to avoid divisive social issues. So the Conservative Party of Canada, in general, they'll say, well, we're economic conservatives, but we're socially liberal, as if this were a possibility. Uh, In the name of loving, many Christians are going to do more or less the same thing. Well, we don't agree on economic issues, so financial, but in terms of how we're going to relate to people, we can be soft uh, in the same way, and we want to out-soften the soft left because we want to get you on the economic issues, which is really what the Christian faith is all about. Well, what sort of witness is that? to begin with. It just looks like mean-spiritedness, quite frankly. And young people perceive it that way. And we have nothing as Christians to speak to in the cultural and social and personal matters which the gospel speaks clearly to. And yet, uh, probably because of this 
east-west tension, Christians have lost the plot on this front, I think. And so by stealth, cultural Marxists have, uh, have slowly and now, I think, almost incontrovertibly uh, captured our pulpits. Um, and so the emerging church now speaks to the cultural issues that supposedly more orthodox churches will not, and the youth go to them. And the youth go to them. You all recognize this. And the, uh, and the pressure is, I want to speak to the youth. I want to reach the youth for Christ. How am I going to do it? Well, then I'm going to have to adopt the same narrative, the same care and compassion that these people are. And Joe's talk, I thought, was quite helpful in orienting us on how a Christian should think about these issues. I want to talk about the specifics of the threat a bit more before I'll come back to the issue as well. But to my mind, any discussion of social justice needs to deal with the influence of cultural Marxism. So let me talk about that. Now, as I think most people know, Marx and his followers predicted that the proletariat, that is the working classes, uh, would, in, would inevitably re- revolt and rise up against their masters, seize the means of production through a violent political revolution against the reactionary bourgeoisie as a prelude to creating a, a, a more just and equal society. There was an equalization, and the theologian that Joe quoted was a clear Marxist. He saw it as equal on economic terms. Uh, and he thought that it would that it would happen when when the next pan European civil uh, war happened. Basically, at that point, the working men will say, "Enough of this! I'm not going to give my life for uh, to perpetuate this uh, unequal and unjust system. I'm not going to do it." And then they will do this. Well, much to the chagrin of the Marxists, though the war happened, the revolution did not. The first world war broke out. Working men lined up in their millions to fight against their country's enemies. Uh, And the sole exception, and it was only an exception uh, after the fact, in 1917, in politically backward Russia, not where Marx expected it. He thought it would be England that would move first on this front, that they would seize Marxism as their their own. But only in Russia, the Russian Revolution uh, tried to follow Marxism. Um, because elsewhere the workers simply didn't want it. They simply did not want what Marx regarded as in their best interest. They didn't see the enemy as Marx saw them. And this provoked a lot of soul-searching on the part of the Marxists. And there were two respondents to this. Now, of course, there was still, under Marxist, uh, Leninist ideology, the political and economic threat. And it only stopped with the collapse of the Berlin Wall. That and I mean, there's still a few tin pot regimes like Castro's Cuba, but I mean, they're not a threat anymore. And they still have that same sort of ideology. But the indirect threat, this was a new one, and this was far greater and more pernicious. And there are two theorists in particular, Antonio Gramsci of Italy and George Lukács of Hungary. They concluded that it was the Christianized West that stood in the way of worldwide communism and the social justice it represented. And Gramsci noted that Christianity had been dominant in the West for two millennia. It wasn't just that the bourgeoisie were tied to the church and its teaching was interwoven through Western law and political structures. It had even corrupted the mindset of the working class. They didn't want to throw it off. Um, They didn't even recognize their enemy. And And so it was the Christian worldview 
that was the real enemy. It wasn't the bourgeois, bourgeoisie that was the enemy. It was the Christian uh, worldview and all and its whole connotations in every sphere of life. That was the enemy to the cultural Marxist. It it infused every aspect of the Western world. It needed to be subverted. Now, Gramsci and the cultural Marxists that followed concluded the West would have to be de-Christianized. Not by revolution. That was not going to work. Nobody would take the direct assault. It had to happen more slowly by means of what he called, and I quote, the long march through the institutions. Long and slow, but relentless. So as to fundamentally rework the culture and turn it against the Christian faith, Now, according to the cultural Marxists, every formative cultural institution, starting with the traditional family, but also including schools, the media, the arts, civic organizations, the legal profession, uh, the the, uh, understanding of the the academic disciplines in every academic discipline, uh, our whole understanding of what human nature is, uh, all of these things, even the churches themselves need to be brought on board with the cultural Marxist agenda. In order for communism to be realized, the Christian roots of the West had to be systematically uprooted and its institutions transformed so that they might realize what uh, Friedrich Nietzsche called the transvaluation of all values. We have to transvaluate all values. So what Christianity exalted must become deplorable. What Christianity deplored must be exalted. It needs to be celebrated with pride. Hint, hint. Furthermore, Marx's proletariat would also have to be reimagined. It wasn't just the working man. Uh, he was too, too much tied to the family, and the family was such a Christian institution, you could never fix or persuade the working man to seize the revolution. They, you just couldn't do it. So we need to have a new imagining of what the proletariat was. And Gramsci argued that a new proletariat would have to be created, and it would include criminals, women, and racial minorities. And the even more influential Hungarian writer, Lukács, agreed with him, and through a program of what he called cultural terrorism, introduced radical sex education into Hungarian schools. Lukács recognized that by attacking Christian sexual ethics, he would undermine the family, and with it, the Christian faith. So he organized sex lectures with graphic illustrations instructing the youth in what he called free love, sound familiar, as well as teaching them to mock Christian sexual morality and monogamy, as well as to rebel against uh, both parental and church authority. And he simultaneously, uh, with a propaganda campaign, ridiculed parents and his country's priests through, uh, again, a propaganda blitz. And I think the effectiveness of this strategy in attacking not Christianity directly, but the family, as well as Christianity, has been uh, demonstrated. Uh, Mary Eberstadt's book, uh, How the West Really Lost God, talks about the, she calls it the double helix effect of the family and the faith, the two of them being hand in glove really working together. It's only when the family is undermined that the Christian faith can suddenly, suddenly become implausible. Um, and that, uh, just the 
sidebar thought here. I wonder why this uh, is, this may be why Christianity is perhaps becoming, at least in North America, against historical precedent, more of a middle class phenomenon. Because it, it, in our day, it's the poor. Uh, the poor are primarily those who come from broken families. And people from broken families have trouble identifying with the Christian faith. Again, the family connection there. So we can't just give them good theology. We also have to address the familial issue. This is essential. And I'll talk about that later. But there's a hostility amongst the poor who historically responded to the Christian faith with open arms precisely because it was a message for uh, not an elite but for them because everyone was poor before God. Okay, back on topic. Next uh, point, and this will be the development of what is called the Frankfurt School. So Afra Lukács, the, the Hungarian writer, and his party were overthrown in Hungary by an invading Romo- Romanian army. He turned up in Germany, 1923. He was one of the keynote speakers of a Marxist study week. And one of the organizers, who was uh, a man of fabulous wealth, was so impressed that he used some of his millions to set up a think tank at Frankfurt University to promote his teaching. It it started off as the Institute for Marxism, but uh, that's not a very clever title. It doesn't disguise what you're all about. And uh, characteristic of the cultural Marxists, they soon changed the name to something far more innocuous. It was renamed the Institute for Social Research though it was eventually called the Frankfurt School. It was, loca- it was just identified with the place. But it was called the Institute for Social Research. Now, the Frankfurt School is the originator of what we now call political correctness and, and the idea of multiculturalism. And, and it probably surprises us as Canadians that multiculturalism was not the brainchild of Pierre Elliott Trudeau or the Liberal Party in the 1970s. It was a direct... Uh, It was an idea that we can directly attribute to the Frankfurt School and the cultural Marxists. Forty years before that, or more, the Frankfurt School drew together such writers as uh, Theodore Adorno, the most important of them, uh, psychologist Eric Fromm and Wilhelm Reich, uh, promoters of feminism and matriarchy, uh, and a young man by the name of Herbert Marcuse, And we're going to come back to Marcuse because he was a very important man in the the New Left. Now, Marcuse, just say a little bit about him here. Uh, He expanded Gramsci's new proletariat to include another group, not just uh, women and criminals and racial minorities, but also homosexuals, lesbians, and transsexuals. And he adopted Lukács' radical sexual education and cultural terrorism tactics to promote them as well. So it was Marcuse and the Frankfurt School employing uh, Freudian psychology that would pathologize Christian morality, deeming it the cause of phobias, uh, giving us terms like homophobia, which is still used to this day. Uh, but the influence of cultural Marxism didn't remain in Germany, and thanks, it was thanks once again to a political event. Just as in Italy, where Mussolini had ousted Gramsci, and in Hungary, where the Romanians had ousted uh, Lukács, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party ensured the ouster of the Frankfurt School. The majority of members were Jewish in 1933. They were removed from Germany, and they decamped. Where did they decamp to? 
New York City. So in 1933, the, the Frankfurt School uh, found its way to New York City, and it started its work there against the Christian West and Christianity in general. And I, the question that we have, I had on this is, why is this happening? The Lord, so they started up, and they keep getting pushed to different countries. I, now, this is obviously a matter of dispute here. Um, it seems to me that this is the Lord's judgment, but it's a judgment not on the cultural Marxists. It's on the culture where the cultural Marxists go. In other words, the culture of the West had already become superficial in terms of its Christian faith, and now they've been given over uh, from uh, a truth exchange and the worship exchange to the sexual exchange. And so the radical sex agenda is already a product of the departure of people from the faithfulness to the word of God, which we see in the early 20th century. They have no longer upheld the authority of the word of God in every area of life. At any rate, with the help of sympathetic individuals at Columbia University, the Frankfurt School relocated, uh, and they brought their agenda with them. They, didn't, they weren't needed in Germany. Uh, the Nazis were perfectly adequate to the task uh, of destroying Christian civilization without the cultural Marxists. Thank you very much. They, were, they would have done the same thing. They both hated Christian civilization. We didn't need the cultural Marxists there. We'll send them to uh, the United States. Now, most of the school will return to Germany after the war. And after the war, cultural Marxism becomes the unofficial uh, ideology of the Federal Republic. As I say, I lived there from 90 uh, to 93, and the uh, writers that I've just mentioned were on every bookshelf in the university uh, bookshop. I didn't even know who they were at the time, never heard of them, but they were there. Um, but before that happened, before they left to go back to Germany, they made their impact known, and I'm going to deal with it in four headings. How did it affect uh, the West in the United States? First of all, in media and the entertainment industries. Now, initially, the Frankfurt School, under Theodore Adorno's leadership, opposed uh, such trivial things as culture and entertainment. This was bourgeois. Why concern ourselves? The, I mean, the revolution is about economic and political. But eventually, under the influence of Walter Benjamin, Walter Benjamin, um, who's a close friend of Adorno and his, uh, the leader of the Frankfurt School, uh, Max Horkheimer, um, uh, Benjamin prevailed upon these gentlemen that actually radio, film, and eventually television could be used to psychologically condition the public to accept the tenets of cultural Marxism. In particular, its views on the family, on authority and its, uh, and its justice, law, race, etc. And both Horkheimer and Adorno spent the entire Second World War in Hollywood, which to this very day is cultural Marxism's most powerful weapon. Look at Hollywood's view on fatherhood. Look at its view on sexuality. Look at its view on race. There's a perpetual stream on now on gay, uh, all of these issues. It is, the, it is the, the way of softening and making psychologically tenable, culturally acceptable, what cultural Marxism wants to promote against the Christian faith. That's the first thing. Secondly, there is something called studies in prejudice. The Frankfurt School uh, also sought to stigmatize Christian culture by defining its expressions 
on sexual morality, on the views of the family, and on paternal authority as nefarious prejudices. These were prejudices. You know, the traditional view of the family, that's a prejudice. The idea that uh, the father has authority in the family, that's a prejudice. Um, these, are, these were attacked through a wide-ranging series of academic studies. Now, the most important contribution to this movement was uh, Theodore Adorno's book, uh, The Authoritarian Personality, written in 1950, uh, which created what he called an F scale uh, that connected traditional Christian views on the family and sexuality to varying degrees of fascism. That's the F scale. Where on the fascist scale do these things lie? And they're all connected, to, again, to the traditional family and, the, and, uh, and Christian sexuality. If you uphold these things, you are a fascist. So to connect Christianity with fascism is not just implicit, it's explicit in Adorno's work. Now, uh, and to this day, a person who is under the sway of political correctness will very quickly anathematize his or her opponent on matters related to the Christian notion of family, abortion, sexual ethics, by accusing them of being fascists. Go straight to it. Where's the connection? There's the connection. That's the connection right there. And most of these people who are attacking Christians as fascists have never read Adorno or heard of him. But his idea and the connection between Christianity and fascism has become so accepted and ingrained that people automatically revert to it. So that's the second point. Third point, critical theory. Uh, you heard uh, I'm an English prof. I teach literary theory, among other things. And one aspect of literary theory is something called critical theory. Now, critical theory is the Frankfurt School, basically. Um, and uh, this is, again, probably well known to us, but not in connection to cultural Marxism. The purpose of critical theory isn't to develop discernment, which, uh, which historically it would have been in the logocentric tradition of the West. To critique is to discern, to to cultivate the critical mind is to be able to distinguish truth from falsehood. But Adorno's uh, critical theory is not trying to develop discernment, the distinction between right and wrong. Critical theory has one sole aim, and that is to attack Western culture and to negate it. It doesn't tell you what it's in favor. It never defines what it proposes. It simply defines what it is up against. Joe and I regularly encounter this in, our, uh, in the positions of our opponents on the culture wars programs we're on. They're on the attack. If you push back, they have nothing to defend. They propose nothing other than that we all get along and you know, be more inclusive and tolerant. And you know the old that list of words that I cited at the outset, that's what we are moving towards. But we're on the attack against a very specific position. Well, this is the uh, tactics of the critical theory. And it underlies the academic approach taken by virtually every university in the Western world, including Christian universities, because Christians have failed to see how much cultural Marxism has infected their disciplines. And it subjects every critical theory subjects every traditional institution, beginning with the family, to unremitting criticism and assault in order to bring it down. And you'll recognize it in terms of the departments that it has spawned, cultural studies, women's studies, aboriginal studies, 
African-American studies, LGBT studies, post-colonial studies, etc., etc. Now, note all of these studies are a very specific identity group branch of the humanities. They, uh, by their very definition, deny a common humanity. Right, so they are are in actually even their definition an assault on the humanities, and the idea of a common truth and a common law and a common God and a common good, by their very definition, and yet they are perceived to be again the way of bringing about social justice, and these are the primary instruments of social justice. So political correctness is particularly strong in these areas of study, which, as I say, don't actually study. That is, they build up. They simply tear down. If you take one of these studies, uh, you will find that they are, they are targeting Christians. If you're a Christian in one of these areas of study, you will find that you are under attack. So if your children are going into one of these, you know what to expect. You'll find it actually in every area of study, but these in particular, that's their sole raison d'etre. And the products of these studies, the people are almost invariably marked by implacable anger, and hostility towards the West in general, and Christendom in particular, and anyone that represents it, even a mum. The children that have gone through this will turn upon their parents as if they were fascists. Brainwashing. So that was the third point, critical theory. Fourth one, domination. Marx had argued that history is economically determined. He was a materialist. Those who own the means of production have the power and they determine the course of society. But the Frankfurt School, the cultural Marxists, in accordance with their reimagining of precisely who constituted the proletariat, remember it included the feminists and uh, the criminals and different races and uh, sexual minorities as it's presented now rather than sexual deviants as it would have been perceived then, um, argue that history was determined by identity groups. So whichever group, whether male or female, black or white, religious or irreligious, gay or straight, was in a position of social approval, had by virtue of the fact, of that fact, dominance over the other groups. Just simply by virtue of the fact that this position was approved of, that meant that they dominated and therefore crushed the other groups. Now, this is not a historical judgment. It's simply an assertion, again, in line with critical theory and everything that went before it. So all forms of traditional authority were in their sights, thus illegitimate. Criminals were, by virtue of their condemnation, good. Their judges, bad. Simply by virtue of their position uh, as an identity group in society, they were structural oppressors. Structural oppressors. I'm going to get to this and your diagram in, in a second. Now, the Frankfurt School was particularly influential in passing on this form of teaching into the public school system because it dovetailed so effectively with the influence of the progressivist educator John Dewey. And I've written about Dewey's influence on public education in an early installment of uh, Jubilee magazine. Dewey taught that it was irrelevant if children were taught specific skills or facts. It didn't matter what they were taught. What mattered was how they were taught. In fact, to be educated for the future, they needed to be schooled not in what was, but what might become, what could be. To give them specific content would be grounding them in the past. We needed to prepare them for the future. 
what mattered was that they were well-adjusted. They had to be well-adjusted individuals. They had to be open-minded. That was the outcome of it. There was a book back in the 80s called What Happened to... What was it? What Happened to the American Mind? Closing of the American Mind. Uh, Alan Bloom, which I read at the time, he talks about the culture of openness. That's the only value that he could find amongst his students that they would espouse openly is open-mindedness. This is being well-adjusted. They've been trained to be well-adjusted. They have no morals. They have no virtue, but they are open-minded, which they think is the soul of virtue. Now, this made them this public system of education uh, promulgated by Dewey in the public system since the 19th century. And remember, most Christians, and probably most of you in this room, uh, went through the public system. You've been infected by this, and you're open to cultural Marxism precisely because we value being open-minded, tolerant, multicultural, inclusive as the virtue, and particularly the Canadian virtue. The Canadian virtue. So once this is your mindset, it makes you ripe for the cultural Marxists who simply reversed what the right attitudes were on certain questions. What does it mean to be well-adjusted? Well, now it means being open to the LGBT agenda. That's what open-minded means. In other words, the precise opposite of what it had been not 20 years before. It wasn't even on the radar in the 70s or the 80s. In fact, in the gay community, they weren't pushing for gay marriage 20 years ago. No one. Um, this is because of something, and I've got a diagram which I've asked uh, to be handed around. It's the wheel of oppression. This is, uh, this is the direct, it's a diagrammatic presentation of the, uh, what I'm talking about here, the structural uh, uh, power, so privilege, power, access, and resources, and how they are connected with certain groups. The closer you are to the center here, the greater access you have to privilege and power and resources and so forth. So if you're white, male, uh, wealthy, speak English, you're able-bodied and you're Protestant and heterosexual, you are a, an abuser. You are, uh, by virtue of these things, you are an oppressor of the first order. You don't actually have to commit an act uh, which makes you guilty. You already are guilty by virtue of the fact that you are these things. Now, if you're guilty and we're after social justice, how can we eradicate the guilt except by removing you from that position? That's how we bring about social justice. And you'll look, if you look at the outside of this, people with uh, mental disabilities at the bottom, moving right, who are foreign-born, not English speakers, on welfare, intersex. I don't even know what that means. I've forgotten. Um, Native American, queer or pansexual, I mean sex with everything and anything, uh, and are either Hindu, uh, Muslim, that might shock you a bit, or Buddhist, then you are also the most structurally oppressed peoples. Now, this is an obviously not a historical judgment. It's not even a rational one. It is an attempt of the cultural left to replace the cultural center, namely uh, Protestant Christianity or Catholicism there, closely allied there, with its opposite. So what's on the outside needs to be brought into the middle and vice versa. And that is how we bring about structural justice because we have a structural guilt. Now, part of this is that there is a cultural determinism that comes with this. This is the product of Darwinism. In these people's thinking, 
Uh, man is uh, an animal without a soul, um, and his uh, nature is determined by his skin color or his sexual preferences. There's no moral nature there. There's no choice. There's no freedom. It's just you're determined by your uh, physical characteristics. And so it emphasizes as well group rights over individual rights. It will speak of minorities, but it ignores the ultimate minority, which is the individual. You and I are the most vulnerable. Actually, the infant in his mother's womb is the most vulnerable person of all. But that is an individual. Uh, that is an individual whereas the women's rights are seen as a group, as a collective, and therefore their rights are uh, upheld and promoted. And furthermore, what characterizes this is that immediate action is needed, uh, not just agreement with the tenets of cultural Marxism. This view needs to be subverted and has to be done so immediately because there is no divine justice. We can't wait for justice to be done by God in the end. We can't wait for the laws to change things. You, if you're in the center of this, must act to subvert this dominant system. Otherwise, you are an oppressor and need to be removed. So you can't just agree that it's right. You can't just sit silently, as we heard the mother whose uh, son had become gay. You can't just say, I'm willing to do this. You actually have to actively promote for this. Otherwise, you're still uh, guilty. So there's an activism, uh, compulsion, a social compulsion, which we're all feeling as Christians uh, throughout the West now. Um, and finally, there's a politics of guilt and pity. This is the more theological point here. Having thrown off the, the significance of Christ's atonement for all people, for all sinners, uh, the guilt doesn't go away. They still have a sense of guilt. It needs to be dealt with. Well, they, and how do they do this? Well, they either do it sadistically by uh, putting it on Christians. They're going to be the scapegoat or the Christian past or the West. That's going to be the sadistic. So we're going to uh, basically eradicate, airbrush our entire cultural memory. If you study about the history of Canada, uh, you probably study as much about Aboriginal studies as you do about Canadian history. Not that it's not a part of it, but it becomes almost the focal point of it. Um, so you either sadistically go after the Christians and the West, or uh, you do it masochistically and you apply it to yourself. You and this is what Christians are more likely to do. They feel the sense of guilt. They're not, they know they can't scapegoat others. They're not going to throw stones. What they're going to do is flagellate themselves and feel guilty and feel the necessity in the name of social justice to embrace all the causes uh, of the oppressed, and who are the oppressed? Well, we've just seen who the oppressed are. They're all the people on the outside of the circle. And if you look at the political, le uh, sorry, the Christian left, you will see that they embrace everything gravitating towards the outside of the circle. Well, in the 1960s, I don't know how much time I've got here. Um, as I said, many of the Frankfurt School returned to Frankfurt after the war. One person stayed behind of significance, Herbert Marcuse, uh, the most important figure of the New Left. His genius was in translating his more uh, opaque colleagues' concepts into uh, un um, language that Americans could understand because the jargon of the, of the Adorno and stuff like that is pretty opaque as in general of German writing is. But Marcuse had a gift of translating and he did so. He put them their theories into it. Now, his chief work was entitled Eros and Civilization, 
hybrid of Marxist and Freudian teaching, which maintained that a new paradise where there was only play and no work could only be created if we, quote, liberated non-procreative eros through what he called, quote, polymorphous perversity. Again, sexual licentiousness. He destigmatized every sexual expression except that of heterosexual marital relations, which he, which he stigmatized. And again, you can see this in Hollywood uh, on TV. Marital relations are joyless, sexless. Those outside marriage are joyful, fulfilling, etc. Over and over. Uh, and increasingly so, it's those who are not even um, heterosexual in relations, but all manner of things. It, it happens very slowly because it takes time for people to adapt to the change. If you do it too quickly, there's a backlash. Every once in a while, the, the, the cultural Marxists overstep the mark, try to bring things in too quickly. They get knocked back. That doesn't mean they're going away. They're coming back there. It's just you moved a little quickly there, son. Just slow down. We're, we'll be there eventually. So homosexual marriage is the prelude to the openness of all sexual deviance. Because consider this, what is going to stop it? What standard would stop that from happening? There is none. Even the idea of two people. I mean, that's just arbitrary, isn't it? So there's, uh, he has created a whole new class of victim group, the sexual deviant. And he allied them to the blacks and the feminists to pose a potent coalition because now he can identify it with real injustice, slavery, which Christians abolished incidentally, uh, the women's right movements, which women were actually, and Christians were strongly involved with as well, and Christians agreed with. But now he's connected the gay rights movement with both uh, the abolitionist movement of slavery and the women's right movement, and now they see themselves as one and the same. It's a coalition. It's the new coalition. And it is Marcuse who also branded the, the, uh, branded the term tolerance from its traditional definition of a political virtue, of tolerating those with whom we disagree, which is only possible, by the way, in the context of Christianity, and its doctrine of the limited, though real, authority of the state, the church and the family, to what he called, and this is his phrase, liberating tolerance. Liberating tolerance entailed a sort of uh, Orwellian doublespeak. It meant agreement with the cultural Marxists. If you agreed with them, you were tolerant. If you disagreed with them, then you were intolerant. That's what it means now, the intolerance of tolerance. Well, actually, it's very tolerant of, of, of everything except one thing, and that's Christianity. You've noted this. It's been well documented. Uh, and their opponents, of course, uh, this is the left, and their opponents, that is Christians, are on the right. It doesn't matter which political party you are. Even if you've always voted NDP and you're Christian, you are now on the right if you identify with Christianity because Christianity is on the right, whether you realize it or not. Um, and the left-right dichotomy is essential because to anathematize uh, their opponents as unreasonable, unreasonable and uh, wicked in their motivations, they have to connect them with the fascists of Nazi Germany. Recall my earlier comment. Irrespective of how different an American Baptist who believed in the limitations of the state uh, might be from their alleged ally, the, the uh, fascists uh, in Nazi Germany who think the state should be running everything. And it was Marcuse and his acolytes who would have most influenced Pierre Trudeau. 
and brought about the transformation of Canada in the 60s and 70s that I discussed at the outset of this talk. And, after, and the long march through the institutions since that time, such that uh, Trudeau Jr. would be so far left of his father that his father wouldn't recognize, but that's the long, slow march of the left. And note that we go from uh, somebody who sounds fairly reasonable in our context, Trudeau uh, Sr., to, some, to somebody now who, again, says to be uh, a Liberal Party member, you can't have freedom of conscience, but you can represent uh, your constituency in the Parliament. I mean, there are contradictions all over the place. Canadians, the reason that this has hit, uh, has hit a sort of a bum note is because Trudeau, he's pushed things a little bit too far a little too quickly. But the question is, has he pushed it too far? And at the moment, he's not getting a political backlash, so maybe he hasn't. Maybe he hasn't. All the more worrying. And it was Marcuse that prepared the ground for Michel Foucault, who I've talked about in my uh, article, Plastic Sexuality, and the radical sex agenda that's now going directly into the public education policy of every school in Ontario. Every school. Every publicly funded school. Uh, yeah. Um, now, there are all sorts of illustrations of this uh, in action, but we can see it. Um, let me give a couple because they'll, they'll come immediately to mind, and then I want to talk about a response. So uh, in, you'll know this in, in the U.S., uh, they're tended to be run by uh, states. It's far more of a, a state-governed uh, system than in Canada, where it's more federally governed. Uh, in the states, there have been referenda where people have passed um, defense of marriage acts, right? Uh, by popular consent, and usually strongly so. And uh, six Democrat, I, mean, I'm not, I don't actually have a political position here, but it's started to ally itself very um, much Republican, Democrat, or conservative, so that there, there is no middle anymore. You're one or the other. It's become that way in our day. Um, six Democrat attorneys general have refused to defend bans on same-sex marriage, although it's the law, and that's what the Attorney General is there to do. Um, and the Attorney General, Eric Holder, has actually said, and I quote here, state attorneys are not obligated to defend laws that they believe are discriminatory. That they believe are discriminatory. What happened to equality before the law and everyone under the law? Now, uh, Holder is a cultural Marxist as is President Obama, who speaks regularly of fairness now. He is a cultural Marxist. And again, uh, the degree of how far you're willing to go is just depending on the temperature and the mood of the, of the time, but it will just keep going. What they have in common is an, an opposition to Christian morality, to the law of God in, in particular, to the idea that justice and mercy are found in Jesus Christ and him alone in his atonement, so they have to bring about atonement, and they're going to do it by coercion. So you can do it with the IRS probes and so forth. We see the same thing in this country in the Trinity Western uh, case. The very same thing. Um, this is a reading from Mark Penninga from, uh, from ARPA. Uh, he was commenting on this, uh, that uh, the definition of uh, marriage was changed in 2005 to legalize same-sex marriage. And he comments and says this, what was considered binding by the law only nine years ago now makes one unfit for practicing law, at least according to 77% of the lawyers who voted this week. He's talking about the BC college. And what's more, and this is a 
fantastic point, the 2005 Civil Marriage Act went so far as to say, quote, nothing in this act affects the guarantee of freedom of conscience and religion, and in particular, the freedom of members of religious groups to hold and declare their religious free, uh, beliefs, end quote. Now, the lawyers of this country would be sworn to uphold that law. That was their oath. Now they're going to defy their own oath because it seems right to them. How can the legal system act in accordance with the law, in accordance with justice, when they're willing to contradict their own stated beliefs that were only nine years ago established? So in the TWU case, where once again the, uh, the education uh, you know this, 13 years ago, they were allowed to have a, a school uh, which educated teachers, College of Teachers. It was opposed at the time. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court found on their side. There's been teachers trained by TWU ever since that time. Have there been, here's the question, have there actually been people who've come out of that who have persecuted the people that allegedly they persecute? If they were, then we would hear about it. We haven't heard about it. The opposition here is not to actual acts of injustice, it's to the structural injustice of having Christians in the position of being able to accredit people. In other words, it's against God's accreditation, and it's a clear uh, move to cut that off. And they're, they're thinking, they know the law, the lawyers know the law, they also recognize the spirit of the land, and they think they're above the law. So let me get to... Uh, my final thing. How shall we answer this then? How shall we answer this? I might run out of time on this bit. I want to say three things. Uh, that was the analysis. I want to look at the, one of the obstacles, and then I want to look at two possible courses of action. So, um, you already know about my biography, so I'm not going to talk about that. But I have noted that in universities, uh, the best of us try to defend the true and the good and the beautiful against the assault upon it, particularly, among others, by the cultural Marxists. Defending the truth is crucial to what we do. It's absolutely crucial to what we do. But I have to say, in the face of what clearly is an increasingly hostile environment, and academics are keenly aware of it because in academia, that's usually where uh, the badness begins, quite frankly. Um, it's spread from academia now to the entirety of society. This defense of the truth has given away from being a public act to the holding of a private conviction. So when academics, even in Christian institutions, publish, do they actually forefront their Christian faith and convictions in their articles, or do they reserve those for their private views and don't seek to publish upholding Christian convictions in, in, in public ways? Well, they don't, I can tell you. They don't do that. Um, they don't even try to publish them. Um, they're aware of the need for inclusivity. Even inclusive language, they'll abide by this. Um, they're aware of the, the hold of Darwinism in academic circles, and they dare not defy that. Um, they're aware of, uh, of religious and uh, philosophical inclusivism, moral relativism. They're aware of all these things. They tend not to tack against these. And the primary reason why they do this and the consequence of this is that uh, our culture has become what John Calvin in his day decried as the sin of the Nicodemites, which is they claim to be believers, and they may well have been, but they did it in secret. They didn't want to declare their faith openly because to do so would threaten their position. Remember, Nicodemus was in the Sanhedrin. 
He didn't want to. We're not saying that Nicodemus wasn't a Christian. He probably was. But he did not openly avow it. And as a consequence of that, um, many people in our day are pragmatically seeking to get into position. They're waiting to the time where they get in a position of power where they think they're going to be unassailable. And then they're going to come out and do good things for the kingdom of God. And uh, as you all know, that day never comes. Because if you're not willing to stand up on the small things along the way, you will never be there when you have everything to lose and you've got a lot to lose by that point. And actually, you're even more vulnerable because now your head's above the parapet and it's going to get shot off. Um, that day never comes. So really what the issue here is, uh, is of courage. It's courage. Courage is the first of the virtues called this because without it, fear will paralyze a man. It will keep him from acting upon his moral convictions and speaking the truth. When a community as a whole is marked by a paralyzing fear, as I believe you're seeing in our day, uh, marks Christians throughout the West, and Christian leaders won't stand up and speak out, it leads to apathy and resignation amongst the old, and it leads to cynicism amongst the young. They hear them saying this. They talk the talk. They won't walk the walk. And the kids f- f- go. They go. And so there's a wide gulf there. They see hypocrisy. And it leads ultimately to absolute submission. It leads a free culture to a slave culture. We are entering into a slave culture. And this is the very purpose of cultural Marxism and its psychopolitical cultural terrorism. It's not the work of a few German writers. It's the work of the Prince of Darkness. He knows the battle's already been lost, but his tactic is to so humiliate the church. He can't get at Christ, but he can get at his church. It's to so humiliate his opponents that it, it feels un-Canadian. It's unfair. It's not right to speak on these things. It's not very considerate. Um, it almost feels illegal simply to call the act of sodomy, sodomy, <gasps> the word. Now, this tactic can only succeed in the darkness. And if we've learned anything from Tolkien, it, it is fear that is the chief weapon of the enemy. It's fear. Never mind the right ideas. It's fear that is the chief, enemy, uh, chief weapon of the enemy. But here's the encouragement. Nothing that acts upon fear can survive in the light. You'll know this yourselves. The creepy crawlies in your basement flee into the shadows the moment you flick the switch on. Right? When the file of Galadriel is held up, the big spider uh, flees. And as we know, the light that we have as Christians is the light of of truth, the light of the gospel. So when I go into a debate, and Joe, I know, is exactly the same on this, we know that we've already won the debate because we've got all the winning arguments. We've got all the cards. This is a good feeling. But we also know that we're still going to get assaulted and there's still going to be perception that we have somehow transgressed and haven't been fair. And that's the fear factor. And there's an opposition there. So it's a spiritual thing. And, but it's really there. The reason that uh, people are able to do this is simply because they do it. It doesn't require a particular spiritual gift. Everyone has the capacity to be, act as if they were born again, if they are born again. You can talk about being broken, How about talking about being healed? Being healed means that you've got the courage of the the Christian, the the freeborn Christian. You're a new creation. 
So our chief struggle is with fear. Um, so to all of us pastors, where does fear strike at us? Well, we want to be liked. Uh, many of us uh, might even be people pleasers. It's characteristic of pastors, I think. Um, we might be afraid of offending our friend, friends in the congregation or maybe even losing the congregation. We need to remember that it's our responsibility not just to preach the gospel, to, but to preach the whole of it. The whole of it. And particularly in these areas where our culture is uh, assaulting and casting darkness on things. And the full implications. And this becomes more difficult every day. And with each passing Sunday, these small capitulations become the big one. On the side of our congregations, what's their fear? Well, their fear is that their working lives are caught up in all of the things that I've just talked about, their family lives, everything. They might be working in the public school system. They might be working in social services, in the legal system, perhaps in the government themselves. Their friends and family have been caught up in this. If, and so they've been overrun by cultural Marxism. The lines are behind them. They are now behind enemy lines, and they know it. To stand up for Christ in that context is to get mowed down. If you do this in the public square, you'll just lose your job. Maybe you ought to do this. I've said this here before that uh, teachers ought to maybe consider if they're put to that, and this is soon to be put to the people of Ontario in the public school system, where is your allegiance? Um, so this is the first possibility uh, in terms of a solution here. We can, we can stand against this as a strategy. You can say individually, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to speak out against this. You know the consequence of it is you're just going to get shot down. To stay in the institutions, to try and recapture them, to be salt and light within them, I think is a losing game now. So what's the alternative then? Because I, I think r- running at a machine gun nest is ridiculous and does not honor Christ, per se. It's just stupid. So what is the, another strategy? Well, we can separate ourselves and our families from the institutions the cultural Marxists control and build new institutions for ourselves, create Christian entertainment, uh, create Christian schools, create Christian uh, governance structures, a legal system, um, We've started up, uh, you heard uh, Randy and Joe mention the, the Westminster Classical Christian Academy. That is, and we're not going to use the Ontario curriculum. Uh, more people need to do this. Recognize that this isn't just an, an option, it's a necessity. There is no alternative other than getting mowed down. Or capitulating, in which case you'll have someone else to answer to, and not me. Um, again, Christian courts of arbitration, Christian social welfare agencies, uh, Uh, Jenny Forbes has something called Save Families for Children. It's an attempt to keep families together. Again, a way of battling the cultural Marxists. These things to me seem entirely tenable and a way of providing a genuine, healthy alternative. When people look to this, they will see light. And when they see the light, their own fears will be dealt with because people who are not Christians are terrified by everything. They will see people who are strong and brave and standing with whole and healthy families who love one another, and that will win people to the gospel. I'm done. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.